created live on Fireside. Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe, the fireside chat about U.S. higher education, the news and the stories of campus life. I'm Dr. Laura DeVoe, a 30-year higher education veteran who has dedicated her life to college students. Over those years, I celebrated underdogs who won championships. I ate more pizza than a human being should ingest in a lifetime. And I shook the hands of graduates as they grabbed hold of that hard-earned diploma on the first day of the rest of their lives. And that's why I'm here. You see, there are lived experiences, there are stories, there are moments that students have on campus that prepare them for life. I wanna connect with these people and those who helped them along the way and hear how campus life brought their real life purpose. There are so many stories on campus and that's why I hope you'll stay to listen, contribute and become part of the community. So join me for Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe, only here on Fireside Chat. Good afternoon, everybody. It is noontime on Wednesday, and this is Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. Thank you for being here. And uh, today's show, uh, the academic year, is here. Uh, there are college students packing up their bags and moving on to campus right as we speak. Uh, and uh, so we uh, are going to be talking about uh, this transition. Um, it's a difficult and sometimes uh, more difficult than others' times. Uh, but it's an exciting time. Uh, but for our first generation college students, uh, it can be even more difficult. And uh, so today we are going to be spending time talking about first generation students and how to heighten their success transition, successful transition. And um, I am pleased to have as my guest an old friend, uh, Dr. Lynn Zlotkowski uh, from uh, University of Southern New Hampshire. Thank you, Lynn, for being here. Oh, absolutely. So happy to do it. I am so happy to have you here. So thank you. Uh, Lynn is the Director of Academic Advising at Southern New Hampshire University up in Manchester, New Hampshire. Uh, Lynn is working at, uh, has worked at six institutions of higher education, uh, predominantly in academic support and advising. She earned her bachelor's in communication from SUNY Fredonia her master's in higher education administration from Buffalo State. She is a huge Buffalo Bills fan, by the way. And her doctor in education from North dissertation focused on first-generation college students who participate in varsity athletics. So, uh, so Lynn, thank you for being here. Um, and when I thought about this particular topic, I said, there is no one I want to spend time talking <laughs> about this more than Lynn Slutkowski. So thank you for being thank here. Thank you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. All right. And so for those in the audience, uh, this is a uh, uh, fireside chat. One of the beauties of fireside chat is that if you do have a question at any point, uh, we encourage you to please ask uh, to come on up on stage and uh, pose your question to Lynn or myself and uh, be part of the conversation. Um, so I want to hear from you first and foremost, Lynn, let folks really learn more about you and your journey um, to working with college students. Uh, as uh, someone who's worked with college students for my whole life, uh, we know that this is not necessarily something that you 
said when you were five years old, I think I want to work at a college. I want to work with college students. Um, it is something that you're kind of drawn to as a vocation. Uh, what got you into this field and uh, what was kind of your the, the precipitating moment that made you say, I think I can do this for a living? Yeah. Do you know what's so funny is I have a five-year-old and he says all the time he wants to work at a college. <laughs> I think if you grow up with a parent who has the passion that that you and I have for working yeah. in higher education, working with college students, that that passion kind of, you know, he's eaten more pizza than he knows what to do with on college campuses. <laughs> he he um, has come to the office with me. And um, so, yeah, it, so the, the road to here, right, I was, um, I was not a great high school student. I actually didn't think I wanted to go to college. I wanted mm -hmm. to work and uh, I was encouraged by my parents to go and, um, so I went and it was all right. I played lacrosse for SUNY Fredonia. So I was a varsity athlete. I was very involved on campus. I was a, you know, I decided to jump into all of it. I worked for intramurals. I worked in our, um, I worked for athletics and as like a game manager kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, I gave tours for admissions. You know, I, I DJed for the race. I did everything you could do in college. Right. Um, and when I was getting towards finishing, um, people kept asking me, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? And I was like, I don't know. And one of our admissions counselors who I knew pretty well, cause I'd been giving tours, she said, you know, you should really think about working in higher ed. And I was like, Oh God, that's something you can do. Like, I didn't even think about the fact that you all work here. Right. Um, and so she went to Buff State, Buffalo State, and you're right, I am a huge Bills fan. She went to Buff State for <laughs> her master's. And so that was the only program that I applied to because it was pretty late in the game. Um, and so I didn't have a lot of options. Um, so I chose Buff State. I got in. Um, and then I was coaching and I thought that's what I was going to do in higher ed. I thought I was going to be a lacrosse coach because um, okay. I love lacrosse. So I was an assistant lacrosse coach while as my grad assistantship. Um, after grad school, I became a head lacrosse coach, um, which is, you know, what you hope to do if you're going to go into coaching. Right. Um, and I was also working in residence life. And I really discovered that I liked the res life part better than I liked the coaching part. I, right. I uh, even though my teams were very successful and I really enjoyed it um, and I loved my teams, um, I wanted to have more of an impact. I wanted to be able to do more. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so uh, from there, I, I switched over. I was at Allegheny College where I had been coaching and they had an opening in their learning center. Um, and so I was like, hey, can I, can I join the learning center? Uh, and which was just academic support. And then I got started on academic support and I, because the athletes were kind of naturally drawn to me as a former athlete and a former coach, and I was working in academic support, I really had a ton of first-gen college students coming to my office, mm -hmm. like yep. all the time. Yep. And because that's a kind of a natural um, with between athletics and, uh, and first-gen students. And, um, and so that's when I fell in love with working with first generation college students. Um, and then it all just kind of kept going from, kept going from there and moved right. up to New England. Um, and again, working in academic support, working in academic advisor, you just have so many first gen students and students with barriers to success in college who are coming to you right. uh, or who you're reaching out to. And so I kind of fell in love with that population of students. Well, that takes us to this definition. So there's there's some folks who are listening who who know what first gens are, but there's others who are sitting here going, okay, well, explain what a first generation college student is. So can you define 
what is a first generation college student and what are the unique qualities of this population of students? So the thing is, a lot of people define it differently, right? That might be why people are so confused. Um, the way that I define a first-gen college student is someone who doesn't have a parent or a parent or guardian in their home who has graduated with a four-year diploma. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I see a first-generation college student and how I have defined it and how we utilize it in our office at Southern New Hampshire University is... Um, you know, students, students in that boat who don't have a parent or guardian who graduated with a four-year diploma. Okay. Different people define it differently though. I will say that. And, and I've heard people define it differently as well. I've heard people say that, you know, if you uh, have uh, nobody in your house or you're like, say, mm-hmm. two or three generations out and, you know, now it's something different, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think they're all over the place. But I agree with your with, you know, you and I are on the same page with this. And this is kind of the working definition that I've used as well. Um, yeah. And I think that for for this particular generation, transitioning into college can be difficult, um, more difficult than other uh, other folks who may have people in their home, either their parents, their siblings, both, um, who've gone through the transition into college. Um, what do you think are, uh, in your mind, in your opinion, what are the qualities uh, that impact uh a successful transition for any student? And then um, tell us about like where uh, for the first gen students that might kind of hit a speed bump. Yeah, it's all about cultural capital. Mm. It is all about knowing how to quote do college, Mm. how to make the right relationships, where to sit in your classroom, who to talk to when you have a question about your bill Mm -hmm. or when you get your financial aid award letter and you're like, what in the heck does this mean? Um, Or knowing that you can fight your financial aid award letter, right? That there Mm -hmm. are are people Mm -hmm. who call and say, hey, I think I should get more money. Um, Yep. It's that it's that cultural capital that separates those who are destined to be to get a diploma in their hand and those who aren't. Uh, And that's disappointing. We have a lot of unspoken rules and expectations in higher ed, and that Mm -hmm. puts our first gen students at an extreme disadvantage. Yep. Yep. I, I appreciate what you said. And, and, you know, I try each week to bring in uh, any nuggets of news. And if you follow me on Twitter, um, my, my Twitter handle is DeVoe, my last name, D-E-V-E-A-U, train. So DeVoe train on Twitter. Um, and I don't just talk about higher ed on Twitter. Unfortunately, I get very deep into politics and some other things too. So if you want like a really crazy, uh, kind of, uh, handle to follow, please feel free to do so. But every day on Twitter, I put out what I call my higher ed thread and, um, two or three stories of the day that, you know, are current news. And one of the ones I'm preparing for today is yesterday, there was an update from the department of education about, uh, sending out to colleges, uh, specifically to the financial aid staff, uh, about professional judgment, quote unquote, professional judgment, uh, by financial aid administrators in terms of how they can, uh, kind of augment student aid. Um, and so that idea right now is really timely. So what you just said about, you know, for a first gen student and that idea of what can they appeal or what can they ask for, um, they're asking right now for, uh, financial aid administrators to be a bit more to be more understanding of some of the setbacks that students may have experienced in the last 18 months and how that might be impacting 
their their uh, financial uh, situation. Um, so I, I appreciate you bringing up uh, that example um, about the transition and what might be a quirk for uh, our our first generation students. Um, you know, as I recall from um, even our time when we worked together uh, at Mount Ida, um, you know, you you actually created a orientation program for parents of first generation students, which I think was super helpful. And one of the things that you kind of keyed in on was terminology. And, you know, higher ed is all about these wackadoo terms. Uh, a- about Acronyms. Uh, we're oh all about God. acronyms is what we're SFS and, yeah. you know, G- GAP. And it, we, we're just all about acronyms. That's mm-hmm. all we do. Yeah. <laughs> and that's, and it's not something that parents even, I mean, even parents who have put their kids through multiple uh, sets of kids through, and they themselves went through, they don't always remember all the terminology because every campus is different. Um, but it can be, in, it, it can be very uh, intimidating for parents um, and for their students. Um, you know, I asked you to be here because your dissertation research specifically on transition of first generation students to participate in division three athletics. Um, and so we're going to get into what's division one versus two versus three in a second, because I think it's important to frame this for the for the audience. Um, but I would I will get to your findings as well. But I want uh, but I want you to tell me why you decided to study this population why you think it's relevant and why you think it deserves this attention. Um, I, I think your your dissertation was wonderful. I loved reading it, um, but I want you to talk to us about what kind of got you going on this. Oh yeah, I, well, I mean, like I said, working in academic support, um, you, you get to know a lot of first-generation college students because they lack so much of that cultural capital, they end up having academic issues, mm-hmm. um, and which is hard and it's stuff that, you know, I have seen 4.0 high school students fail out of college because they lacked that knowledge of, quote, how to do college mm-hmm. or how to successfully navigate the environment. And that stinks. Yeah. Um, and and I, I don't want that to be the case. And so I wanted to, you know, choosing this dissertation topic was, A, I wanted to educate myself more. Um, I wanted to read a thousand articles about first generation college students, which mm-hmm. is what I did. Uh, I wanted to, I wanted to talk to first generation college students in depth, which is what I did, and really hear about their experiences and what made their transition successful or not successful. Um, And I I learned so much and I feel so, um, I'm not going to say lucky because boy, was it a lot of hard work, Mm -hmm. Um, but I feel grateful uh, that I could have the experience and that I could have the support of my family and friends to be able to, as a a mom, as a single mom, as a Mm -hmm. single mom working full time, be able to um, to do all of that work and learn everything that I learned. And now take everything that I learned and pass it on. Mm. Be it, you know, by we're changing up our advising practices at Southern New Hampshire University. And it's because of what I've learned about first generation college students. Amazing. And, you know, we're bringing in new folks to talk to our staff and we're reaching out to students in a different way. And we're communicating with parents in a different way because we see right? There's, there's equality and there's equity. Equality is giving everyone the same thing. Equity is giving people what they need. Yeah. And we know that first-generation college students need 
different support. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I, I love what you're saying here. And uh, for those in the audience, uh, as you know, this is Fireside Chat. Please feel free if at any point uh, Lynn uh, says something that you say, hold on, I got a question about that or I want to make a comment. Or that you're like, man, you know, she's crazy you, and I just need to let her know. She's, right. Or, is that, or like, hey, you seem like a cool woman and uh, so can we have lunch? Um, you know, whatever you want to say, like just, just you know, let us know. Um, but I think that uh, something that I want people to understand uh, is that there are are three divisions in in the NCAA. Um, Division three athletics yes. has a certain nuance to it, yes. um, and I think it's. I love the fact that you did your research on D three because yes. in the D one environment, there is a lot of support baked in. Oh um, yeah, it's a different level. It's required. Of it, yes, it's it's they're required to have that much support by the NCAA. Right. Yeah, and <laughs> the and Division two. They don't have the same requirements. Um, and the difference, Division One is your is your scholarship division. Um, not every student competing in Division One is receiving a scholarship, but it is your scholarship division. Um, most students do receive scholarships in that division. Um, and then Division Two, there's a split. Um, some students receive, some people don't, um, but there is a little bit more directed aid. There's a little bit more kind of messing around. It's actually the smallest of the divisions. Lots of people are trying to move, uh, at least over the last five, ten, uh, five to 10 years, you saw a lot of institutions saying, you know what, we either have to fish or cut bait. We're either going to go up to division one or we're going to go, uh, quote unquote, down to division three. Um, but the reason a lot of folks want to go down to division three is this reason it is your non-scholarship division. And it is not as costly to run because of that, because you don't have to have your um, athletic scholarships. But there's other things you don't have to have, which are things like academic support. Um, so it, was there a reason why you decided to focus on Division Three? I think I know the reason, but, but well, explain yeah. <laughs> to folks why. I mean, I, I was a Division Three uh, mm -hmm. student athlete, mm -hmm. uh, and I was also a Division Three coach as an assistant coach and a head coach. Mm -hmm. um, I've worked primarily at Division Three institutions. My first institution, uh, SNU, Southern New Hampshire University, where I am now, is my first D2, mm -hmm. uh, where I'm working. I did, when I was in grad school, um, I worked... Uh, briefly as an intern with a division one institution, the mm -hmm. university of Buffalo, I worked mm -hmm. as an academic advisor for men's basketball. And um, so I really got to, I've gotten to see how much time, effort and passion goes into division three with no money. People mm -hmm. are, that is a big misconception. Folks think, Oh, you played sports in college. You must've gotten a scholarship. Yeah. Heck no. Like yeah. I, I put in 30 to 40 hours a week playing lacrosse in college and I worked full time and I was a full time student. I had to work so that I could pay my rent and buy food. Right, right, uh, right. And, but I was at the gym with my teammates at six o'clock in the morning doing our lifts. I was there, you know, for practice, for film, for meetings, for volunteering, for fundraising, traveling. You know, we would get on a bus and drive from Fredonia to SUNY New Paltz, nine hours away. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so, <God> bless. <laughs> I mean, we, yeah, we busted And all there's not the a lot over that nine hours. I mean, no. you're driving, but there's not a no. lot to look at. No, that's a no. long, that's a long bus ride. I did a lot of homework on buses yeah. uh, throughout my my college career, and then even as I was an assistant coach, you know that was when I was doing my grad school homework. I was on the bus while my team was watching the Mighty Ducks, and uh, <laughs> and and then when I was um, 
when I was a head coach, seeing, you know, seeing my team, we were at a very high level um, academic institution. Allegheny is a very rigorous institution. And I had women on that team who are now um, orthopedic surgeons, professors, wow. attorneys, and they were doing their, you know, they were doing their biochem homework on mm -hmm. the bus while mm -hmm. we were driving to Ohio. Right. Um, so that's, that's why division three, you know, it's, it's all the work. It's none of the glory. <laughs> right. Right. And, and I, I, I appreciate that because of a couple of things and not only because of the, what you just kind of outlined in that the students are busting their humps to try to get through, get their, get money, um, through whatever means, whether they're working on or off campus. Um, you know, I can't, I, I can't quantify the number of students I knew who had two, three, four jobs um, while going through school, which is absolutely absurd, um, plus playing sports and that sort of thing. But when you look at the first generation college students uh, and how being a division three varsity athlete actually compounds that is that they find family, right? Um, and they find a sense of connection and they find people who can actually start to, um, maybe translate for them on the campus. Um, oh, yeah. Did you find that, that in your, in your conversations, the lived experiences that these students had, did you find any of that? Yes, absolutely. I mean, what I really heard and what I, so one of the findings was really that a lot of uh, the first gen students who I talked with, they were, they were voyeurs. Uh, mm. You know, they didn't ask questions. They watched and they listened to see what questions other people asked. And so they talked a lot about the benefit of um, their teams, their coaches setting up like a group me mm. or some sort of group chat for the team um, that included the incoming student athletes that that, that group chat started like after the May 1st um, deposit deadline. And they would just watch the team talk mm. in there. And that's how they learned, oh, I'm supposed to submit my housing form because somebody else said, hey, don't forget to submit your housing form, guys. Or someone would say, hey, I want to have one of my teammates as a, as a roommate. How do I do that? And then mm. these first-gen students would be like, oh, we can request a roommate? Right. Like, right. They, that was, they watched the conversations happening. So mm -hmm. um, it was very lucky that one of the classes at the institution where I did my research, they had a full class group me with all, you know, 800 wow. incoming first year students. And that was helpful. Um, but all of them talked about the group chats that their teams had and how they would watch what their teammates were talking about. Mm -hmm. um, and that was how over the summer they learned when things were due. Right. They learned when to get their books. They learned how to pack just by watching the conversation right. happen between their teammates. That's super important. And I'm glad that, and I want to, I want to go in on uh, two of your other findings. Um, when I read your dissertation, I found these quite fascinating. And then we're going to get into the general population about first gens in general. But in your research, um, you found that the importance of self-reliance, which I think is, is a kind of dovetails off of the comment you just made, um, as well as the overcoming of imposter syndrome. Um, and you say overcoming imposter syndrome twice. Um, can you tell me more about these two findings and oh, yeah. uh, what, why, uh, what made these significant to you? Yeah. So the importance of self-reliance, right? Again, these students, what we know about first-generation college students is they have an incredible amount of emotional support 
at home, right? They have people in their family, people in their communities who are very excited for them and emotionally support them. What they're lacking is practical support. Mm. And so it's funny how many of them, when I said, hey, when you were packing for college, who did you ask what to pack? And uh, almost all of them said, Google. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, go I Googled it or I went Google. on Pinterest yeah. or, yeah. you know, I, I looked at the conversations to see what other people were packing. One of them said, you know, I Googled what should I not pack for college? Um, they did their paperwork themselves, asking very few questions of folks. Like they just mm. really muddled through, used the resources that they had, be it Google, be it watching and learning through these group chats, mm. be it listening when their coaches told them, hey, you have to do X, Y, and Z, get it done. Um, they, they found the resources they needed. And I think mm -hmm. these were incredibly, um, you know, intelligent and driven individuals. That's something else that we know about first-gen students that while they may lack cultural capital, they do have a significant amount of aspirational capital, mm -hmm. meaning they just want that diploma more mm -hmm. than their, their continuing generation peers. Um, and so they use that aspirational capital to be like, listen, like I can do this for, I'm doing this for myself. Yeah. Like I, I'm the one who needs to get this done. And so they used every avenue that they had to, to be able to be successful. Um, taking up people on opportunity, taking up opportunities at letting people help them again, looking at chats, watching, Googling, you know, using all the resources. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and then talking about overcoming imposter syndrome twice. So first these students had, you know, student athletes who are first generation college students, first they're overcoming imposter syndrome is an athlete. Uh, that happens for all of us, right? You go, you go from being in high school, you're probably one of the best on your team. Uh, it's a very small percentage of, of athletes who end up playing in college after right. high school. Right. And so you're going from being one of the best on your team to being a rookie, right? You're, you're going from, you're, you're a, you're a small fish in a big, in a big pond. And maybe you've never had a lifting program before. Or maybe you've never had a, you know, a timed mile expectation like this before. And there is a lot of what I've heard from these students. Like, am I good enough? Can I hack it? And I can't name a single student athlete, myself included, that I have worked with over the years who hasn't thought that at least mm. once. Yeah. Should I really be here? Did my coach really want me? Am I good enough? Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so first they have to overcome that imposter syndrome. Someone's going to find out that I'm not really that talented. I'm not supposed to be here. Yeah. Um, so first they have to overcome that imposter syndrome. And then they have to overcome imposter syndrome as being a first generation college student right. of the worry that someone is going to quote, find them out. That someone's going to be like, ooh, you actually aren't supposed to be in college. You're not smart enough to be here. You're yeah. not prepared enough to be here. The, the biggest fear they all had going into their first year of college was failing out. Yeah. That they weren't going to make it. And then all their family's hopes and dreams were going to be dashed because they started and couldn't finish, that they were going to be another college bust mm -hmm. in their family. Um, and so they were carrying this, this weight of expectations, this imposter syndrome in two very critical areas of their identities as both a college student and as an athlete. Um, and they had to overcome that in both arenas to have a, su a successful transition, which meant they learned something from their transition. They felt good about their transition and it helped them grow as a person. Right. Um, 
you know, it didn't mean they all happened to retain at the institution. They all happened to continue to be playing their sports, but um, it's that they saw growth within themselves. Right. That's what made it a successful transition for them. That's great. No, I, I that's I like where you were going with that idea of that imposter syndrome and that the students needing to acknowledge in themselves that they're not just feeling this in one environment or in one arena. They're seeing it on the playing field and they're seeing it as their identity as a student. And, you know, they may be having a great experience on the playing field and still feeling very uneasy about their academic life um, and vice versa, or they may be feeling it both uh, at the same time, just feeling a lot of uncertainty. So the calling it out um, and really putting it out there that this is something they're feeling and that it's not limited to one part of their life uh, over the other, I think is super important. So I'm glad you you made that part of your findings. Um, so let's switching over to the more general piece. Um, you know, in the Atlantic, in an article in the Atlantic last year, they said 90% of first-generation college students are not completing in six years. And and I think that yep. that is just such a startling, horrible statistic. Um, what are campuses getting wrong in all of this, and what can they do better? It's the equality. They're treating yeah. everyone the exact same. Mm. They're not willing they they think of first gen almost as something shameful yeah they're not wanting to say hey you're a first gen student so you might need something a little different right right you know you might need a little extra support you might need an extra outreach or someone looking out for you they they don't want to acknowledge that we have set up higher education to be incredibly difficult to navigate mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they don't yep. want to admit that um that maybe we've done something to make it hard. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, we're pointing the finger and not the thumb. Right. Mm. Um, and that's what needs to change if we right. want these graduation rates to get better. That, I mean, and that's what we're doing in, in my advising office. It's new We're yeah. you know, we know this and we're recognizing it and we're talking about, it's not shameful. What we should be doing is reaching out and saying, hey, I, I saw that you indicated that you're a first-generation college student. That's amazing. I'd love to hear about your experiences on campus so far. Mm -hmm. Or I'd love to hear about your experiences over the summer. Then let me see what I can do to help you out. Like, put it out there is the, is the wonderful achievement that it is. And ask the students what they're what their goals are. Right. And then here are all the ways that I can help you achieve that goal. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, I mean, that's the thing that we're getting wrong though, is that we're not willing to admit that we have made, a, we have designed an environment that is um, set up for only certain people to yeah. achieve. Yeah. And uh, I, and I think that's pretty shameful on the part of higher ed. It, and it, it, it's something that bugs me, honestly. Well, and it, and it makes me crazy because well, we, we spend so much time and the, if you were to ask anybody who's not a higher education uh, professional and you say, what is the biggest issue around higher education right now? What are they going to say? They're going to say cost. Okay. And I, this is not me saying that the cost of higher education is, is where it needs to be at. That is not where I'm saying but there is so much more complexity to why things cost what they do, what is contributing to this, and also what is contributing to student debt. 
And a lot of what's contributing to student debt is this six year plus graduation rate. Oh, to- yeah, totally. And, and that people people completely tune that out. They completely tune that out and they say, you know, what we have to do. We have to just wipe student debt away. I yes, we need to do something about student debt. I get it. And I, I affirm that. But we need to get back to one of the problems is we need to graduate people. Well, yeah. How many how many students are stopping out now with a ton of debt and no diploma? No diploma. I call We're making that it harder ch- for them to t- making it harder for them to pay it back. And and I call that chasing the tail of the dragon, right? So you've got a kid who takes a stop out, and what happens with a stop out is as if you have federal loans and you take a stop out for whatever reason, it doesn't matter the reason. Okay, it could be your father passed away. It could be you have uh, you have to take a stop out for mental health or you're trying to you know, you're just saying, well, maybe I need to just stop for a second. I got to take care of whatever the reason. Well, the clock starts to tick and then you have to pay uh, six months later. You've got to start paying those loans back. And when you have to start paying those loans back and if you're in any kind of collections or anything like that, you can't re-register at the institution and well, <laughs> yep, go ahead. Lynn. And, well, and you can't get your transcript. You, you can't, can't get your transcript. And, yeah. and that's one of the other problems is you've got yeah. students who owe, you know, sometimes a minuscule amount of money to yeah. an institution and they can't get their transcripts released. So well, now they're stuck. It's so hard because you've got, I, I had this conversation recently with my mom who is brilliant. My mom is so smart, but she doesn't really, you know, when she was in college, uh, I hope she's never going to listen to this, but <laughs> when she was in college, you know, it was like $900 a year mm. or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And she worked, she worked her way through college and she was able to pay off her own student loans within like five years. Mm-hmm. Um, but she says, you know, it's the parents, Lynn. The, why are the parents even letting them borrow that money? It's on the parents. And I said, but mom, what if the parents don't know? No. Yes. They don't know any better. Yep. And why are banks, if I go to the bank for a mortgage for $150,000, I mean, as if you can get a mortgage for that right. low, a house for that low of an amount. <laughs> right, but exactly. If I go to the bank for $150,000 mortgage and I don't even have a job, mm. the bank is going to laugh at me, right. but I can go and get $150,000 mm-hmm. from a bank for a college student loan yeah. with, with almost no issue. And mm-hmm. with very little guidance, yes, we do entrance loan counseling, but like, again, enter, even entrance loan counseling is set up for students who have family members or people in their life who can help them understand it. Yeah. And there is nothing, not- there was never a moment that was less depressing. Okay. To me, like it was literally the bottom of the barrel moment when I would see a student walking around campus saying, I'm trying to find someone to co-sign my loan. Oh yeah. And yeah, that was hard. Co-sign on my yeah. loans. And they would go to administrators on campus, like yeah. p- teachers, professors, yeah. people they would get to know and say, I need a co-signer on my loan. And I'm like, that is a moment of desperation. And it's, yeah. it was, it's, and it happens all the time. Yeah. It happens all the time. Yeah. And, you know, as we think about what campuses could be doing better, mm-hmm. um, there are some campuses that do good work, but that good work costs money. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether it be bridge programs um, oh, yeah. or other examples, first gen programs. Yeah. 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 Like what are, what are some of the things, what are some of the things that, that in your research and your experience, and you say, you know, every campus needs to be thinking about this yeah. and how it fits within their campus culture. Cause every campus culture yeah. is different. So some programs will work better than others, but what are your thoughts? Speak expectations out loud. Mm. That's the number one, like, tell students from the get-go what is expected of them. If we know that for a student to be successful, they need to, you know, sit in the T, right? Have you ever heard about the T? If you sit in across the front row or up (laughs) the middle of the classroom, right? Sit in the T, be engaged, go to your faculty member's office hours. Like what is a, what is a quote, good college student do? Mm. We don't actually ever say those things out loud. And so I'm a first generation college student. And honestly, all I want to do is hide because I have imposter syndrome. And so I just want to sit and I am just watching to see what exactly I'm supposed to be doing. So you want to know where I'm sitting? I'm sitting in the back corner yeah. because I don't want people to see me. I'm afraid people are going to see me and think, oh, you shouldn't be here. And so right, right from the get-go on that first day of classes, they're, they're quote, not doing the right thing. We wait for students to come seek us out because, oh, they're adults. They should come and ask us for help malarkey. You know, if we know who our first gen students are, we need to be putting ourselves in front of them first. And we need to be breaking things down and explaining, you know, I said to the folks in my office, we have a, we're doing all of our email templates. And one of the first email templates was about our ad drop week. And I read the email and I was like, guys, you, oh, it's ad drop week. What is ad drop? What is it? Yep. What does that even mean? What does it mean to add a class? What does it mean Mm -hmm. to drop a class? What do students need to think about when they're adding and dropping, like making sure they stay full time or making sure they're taking courses towards their degree so that they'll still get their financial aid because if they take non-applicable classes, it could impact their aid. Um, What We we didn't even explain it. And this is stuff that we can do for free. If we educate our faculty and our staff on campus to the barriers to persistence, and then say, okay, and here's, here's things that you can do on syllabus day, right? Faculty hand out their syllabus and say, all right, look it over and walk away. I didn't even, I, I sat through two years of college before I knew what a syllabus was. Mm. I got it. I got that little packet, but nobody told me what that packet actually was yeah. and what it meant. And nobody, people said, oh, go to office hours. But when one of the, one of the students who I interviewed for my dissertation, she said, you know, everyone kept saying, go to office hours, go to office hours. And finally I said to my roommate, what's that? Yeah. What, what is office hours? Mm. Where do I go? What, what am I doing? Who am I talking to? They are imagining a faculty lounge in high school (laughs) where they're going to walk into a room and there's going to be like 20 college professors in there. And Mm -hmm. holy shimoli talk about intimidating. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nobody has explained to them, oh, this is when, you know, college faculty are sitting in there, they have a designated office on campus and they're just there waiting for students to ask them questions. And so here are some of the things you could go into office hours with. Mm -hmm. If you want to walk in and just to introduce yourself and say, hey, or ask questions about the course or let them know what you like about the course or uh, just tell them a little bit about yourself. Any faculty member would love to have you walk in, but it would just be the two of you. Mm -hmm. Like explaining that because so many of our first gen students who I've talked with they do imagine that that teacher's lounge. Yeah. Uh, and that is 
very intimidating. Right. It's, it's super. And I'm, I'm glad you I wouldn't want to walk into a room of 20 faculty no. members. I, I, how do I say this politely? Anytime I've walked into a room with 20 faculty members, it's been miserable. So, yeah, no, I mean, that's not pleasant. Like, I'm just going to say it out loud. Um, and, and like, there's some people I know will never hear this. So I'm going to just say it right now. But I know there's some people laughing right now going, yes, I guess I've been in that situation. Um, you know, I, I think it's really important for you, for uh, us to kind of wrap our heads around this this whole idea of how institutions are really kind of missing the mark and and not being as innovative um and some of the ideas you put out there is really it costs you nothing like so some of these programs do cost money and other things are just changing a framework of literally literally email language right it's, (laughs) it's changing basic stuff um and i wonder even in the last year and a half with the pandemic and how we've had to kind of transition how we deliver services um i know for myself when i've been teaching and my office hours have literally been a zoom room that i just left open for an hour for people to drop in i've had more people join me in a zoom room than i did in my physical office hours. And I wonder oh, yeah. if, if some yeah. of this is that because we've had to kind of reacclimate all of us to the new terminology and to the new way of doing work, if maybe that has had an impact um, in a positive way on uh, serving uh, our first generation students, uh, because now they're not just, they're not the only ones learning things from the beginning. Right. Um, you've got everybody is relearning how we're doing our work and how we are engaging with the institution. What are your thoughts on that? hundred percent. I've heard the same thing from faculty at Southern New Hampshire. They had more students come to office hours when office hours were over Zoom this past year because we know that this is a generation that feels more comfortable behind a screen. Yeah. They feel more comfortable FaceTiming with their friends than they do talking on the phone. They feel more comfortable, um, you know, being on a screen or typing questions than they do being in person. Right. Um, it's just less intimidating. And rather than shaming them for that, um, which I'm afraid a lot of folks do like, Oh, well, you're going to have to, you know, you're going to have to learn how to do it someday. Mm. Not necessarily. No, like, the, the world <laughs> no. happens more and more over screens and behind yeah. screens. Yeah. Um, so uh, not, not necessarily. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and that's, and, and I'm glad you brought that up because it's always this kind of, you know, it, it's the same terminology we heard our parents say in the past when I went to school. I oh, in my day, hell, in my day, back in my day. Um, and, and nowadays, nowadays we're all dealing with things in a very different way. And, you know, you're going to laugh. I have a 14 year old and, and you know, you know, my daughter. Um, and I can't believe I'm even saying she's 14. I mean, I can't nice. believe you're saying she's 14. That's crazy. No, so, almost as crazy as me she's... saying my son is five. <laughs> I know this is just nuts. Um, but you know, she, uh, this summer I, and it wasn't so much, I was looking at it as a way to say, um, this is something you need to do. Um, you know, we're moving. And so I needed two weeks where no one was in the house. <laughs> And so my husband was finally going back to work in person for uh, two weeks, you know, at the beginning of August. And um, it was a perfect timing. I'm like, okay, you're going to be a CIT, a counselor in training at the local day camp uh, just for two weeks. And this is like your first opportunity to do this. And and that was really the whole the precipice behind this. I'm like, I need everyone out of the house so I can get shit packed. And she's now over there and she's 
interacting with people without a screen. And it is completely outside of her comfort zone. And there's a part of me that is like, okay, this will be good for her emotional development. But I also think that it allows for her to understand that there's a different way to communicate by screen and by not. Um, and I don't think it's going to change her as a person in terms of what her, uh, her tendencies are and what her preference area is. She will always be, as far as I can tell, at least for the short term, someone who, who prefers to communicate by text or by screen, not by sitting in front of somebody. She's completely conflict averse. And that's and, okay. And that's fine. Yeah. But I but I think that what has happened right now is it has allowed for her to have that kind of uh, emotional awakening of I would prefer to be doing this. And at least it's almost like you do with your five year old. You say you got to at least try the try the broccoli. I, you need to try it. OK, I, just I literally, I literally said that one last night. Like, <laughs> you just have to try one single bite and then you can tell me you don't like it. Exactly. And, mm -hmm. and it's the same thing moving moving forward. So I think as as we've kind of been transitioning over the last 18 months of how do we serve our students that uh, in some ways, our first generation students are put at a at a different plane and maybe a potential opportunity for confidence building uh, in that they can say to them, let me tell you how this is affecting me. Um, in the last 18 months, uh, have you been completely remote in terms of how you've been working with your students? Are your students uh, yeah. in person? What's going on? No, Southern New Hampshire, um, you know, maybe you've seen our buses or our television yes. ads. We have a pretty yes. robust online program. Yes, you are uh, what we call a mega university. Yes. yes you have 150,000 uh, or some ludicrous. Yes. Level. And so, but but our campus is 3,000. Mm. And right. we our university campus is very different from our global campus. We operate like a traditional small liberal arts institution on campus. Um, we just happen to have... A, a some really wonderful financial resources mm. thanks to our 145,000 online students. Right. Um, and so we have been able, because we don't need the residence hall revenue, we could really protect our students and our faculty and staff. And we stayed remote the entire time. Mm -hmm. uh, so we are just getting ready to go back in the fall for the first time, which is kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, one thing that I wanted to say that I have noticed and that I hope that we as institutions will continue thinking about too. I know that this was a, a real pain in the butt for some people, but I saw it as an opportunity. We had more parents involved mm. over the past year of mm. being remote. And that's for first-generation college students, that's not a bad thing. Right. Their parents got to really watch what their what their academic life was like. They got mm. to understand better what their academic responsibilities were. Yeah. They got to hear some of the conversations they had with advisors, with accessibility professionals, with faculty members. The first gen parents really had this opportunity to learn so much this year. Mm. And as someone who I hate FERPA, I mean, I've said this like a thousand <laughs> times. I because I think too many institutions hide behind FERPA and say like, no, a parent's calling. We can't say a single word to them. Well, that's not true. Uh, and these are people who have known their kids, presumably for 18 years. We've known them for two weeks. Could mm -hmm. we could we maybe acknowledge that maybe they know a little bit yeah. more about the student than we do? Yeah. And I hope that we can take this, especially for our first gen students, as an opportunity to see the benefit of parents 
being involved sometimes in parents learning about what life is like on campus, learning some of our lingo and our jargon that we use all the time, because then they can be a more practical resource and they are someone who their kid really trusts. Like, why wouldn't you want this person who they trust the most to have the necessary information that the student needs to be successful? Right. No, I think that's great. And, and for those who listened to the last show, uh, we talked about HIPAA and we talked about FERPA. <laughs> it was Laura, FERPA is literally, like literally like, my least favorite thing. <laughs> oh my God. So the Family Educational Right to Privacy Act, it's, it's all about privacy. What can you say and what can't you say? I, I will say this. My, my druthers, after working in higher ed for as long as I did, I'd rather work at a, at a, at a, a private institution when it comes to FERPA versus a public, but that's just, that's a whole other story for another show. Um, you know, you bring up about this idea of, of, about first gen parents and what they have seen maybe in the last 18 months with the zoom university happening around them. Um, do you think after this last 18 months and, and seeing the benefits of the parent parental, um, engagement that institutions could be doing more for first gen parents? And what do you think that might look like? 100% yes. Okay. Uh, they, <laughs> they, you <laughs> okay, know, <done. laughs> parents, so there's this, there's this um, dialectical tension mm. for our first gen students, right? Where they don't totally feel in on campus and they don't totally feel in at home anymore mm. because they, they are living a different life in each of those worlds. Yes. Uh, and Talk so, more about that. That's something people yeah. really don't they are not able to grasp that, especially for families that are not first gen families. What yeah. does that look like in terms of not belonging at home anymore? Because they have this new kind of quote academic life, right? This new university life mm. that maybe no one else in their family knows about yep. uh, and they don't really understand. And so they're seen as, again, like this outsider, or maybe this potential savior or this, oh, you know, you're doing your college life now. Mm. Um, so they feel like it, it's, it's kind of like a constant code switching, right? Yeah. That they have to do where when they're at home, they have to almost like pretend that college isn't that big of a deal and almost act like it's not even happening. And then when they're on campus, they have to code switch and act how they think a college student is supposed to act, mm -hmm. right? So mm -hmm. they're never getting to act like themselves yeah. anywhere. Yeah. And well, how exhausting. It is exhausting. How exhausting. Oh, it, and, and they also, I mean, I remember from my experience working with, uh, you know, predominantly first generation students at two of the institutions I worked at, I were at Indiana University of Pennsylvania, which is a state school outside of Pittsburgh in the western part of the state, and then at Mount Ida, uh, which was a, a small private. And when we had um, student leaders who were first generation students, right? So they became resident assistants uh, predominantly because I was working in res life at both of those institutions. And one of the things that I wasn't, you know, one of the things, if you've ever been an R, thank you very much, Amy, clearly was an RA. So we're excited about that. Um, and again, and we have a lovely audience here. Um, and Lynn is just so wonderful to listen to. If you have any questions, uh, this is Fireside Chat, and we'd love you to come on up and ask. But, you know, I remember having that conversation about, you know, the thing that RAs all have to do is be on call, right? So it's that kind of respond to crises and that sort of thing. But there's a duty schedule. And um, I was having a Dickens of a time 
scheduling on call. And I was hearing from students like, oh, I have to go home that weekend. I have to go home that weekend. I have to go home that weekend. I'm like, and, and you would, and it was, I, it was hard for me because I was not as uh, uh, experienced, especially when I was working at IUP. Uh, Mount Ida was different because I had longer in my, my career, but IUP was the first institution I ever worked at that was uh, different than my undergraduate experience. And my undergraduate institution was not deeply uh, uh, enrolling first-gen students. And so you had these students saying, I, could, I can't be on call any weekend for the next two weeks, two months, because I have to go home and take care of my grandparents or my yep. kid sister or something like that. Cause my mom is not working during the week. Cause she's trying to take care of my, my, my grandmother. So I need to go home on the weekends. And that was something I just did not even wrap my head around. And those were very difficult times for these students to say, I don't even feel like I belong as part of this position that I've received. That's going to give me all kinds of opportunity. And it, it was just so hard to see that yeah. happen. Well, and it's, there are times too, what I heard from several of the students who I interviewed for my dissertation, they felt like they were abandoning yeah. their family, right? Yeah. They felt they were the first ones to leave. Yes. Uh, and that was really, and so they wanted to go home, not because they necessarily had responsibilities, mm. but because they wanted to let their family know that they were still them. Yes. And that they were going to be there so and they important. wanted their, their younger siblings to not feel like they were abandoning them. Mm. And they wanted their parents to know that they still, that they still loved them and mm -hmm. that they still needed them. Um, so it was also about having some face time with these people who were so important to them, obviously. Um, and letting them know, like, I haven't just left you, I'm still mm. here. And so mm -hmm. that is that it, again, like, we need to be able to leave space for students to do that without, even if it's not necessarily a responsibility, like, mm. oh, I have to go take care of someone or I have to go work. Obviously those things you, you want to encourage students, but sometimes it's just, they need to let their families know that they haven't abandoned them yeah. because that's how they feel. Yeah. They feel like they've abandoned their families so and that's hard. It, 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 is, it is beyond hard. And these are the folks who've kind of positioned them for success, right? And so now you are, uh, success is emblematic of leaving. And that is a lousy feeling when you say you're successful because you're gone. And the student can't, they're too totally. young to even deal with that. And the, the parents don't want to think about it. Okay. Yeah. Cause they're feeling abandoned too, you yeah. know, and it, and in they're some feeling way, abandoned and they're feeling terrified Oh God. because they have every single one of those students, when they talk to me about parents who went on tours or maybe parents who talked to their coaches during the recruiting process or came for orientation, the first question that the parents asked were about safety mm. because they, when they have, when you read about higher ed in the news, what do you read about? You read about people dying at frat parties, you read about people getting sexually assaulted, mm -hmm. you read about you read about the worst parts yeah. of higher ed. Yeah. And so all they know is like, oh my God, like is my kid even going to be safe here? Right. And so they're terrified right. dropping them off. More terrified, I think, than continue. I, I can't guarantee this. This is, I did not research this, but I think more worried about their kids' safety than a continuing gen parent might be. Oh, I absolutely agree with you. I, I, I mean, 
it's it's another dissertation, but I think that the the idea around safety and what is presumed safe. I mean, even just look at the participation of first generation college students as it comes to study abroad. That is a huge thing. Oh, yeah. They 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 won't go. Yeah, I mean, and that um, that is one of those pieces where not only people think immediately, oh, it's financial. Well, maybe it is, but that's not the primary thing. It's hard enough for someone to say, oh, they're they're not home. They are across the state or uh, potentially across the country. Imagine being across an ocean. Well, and it's like, holy cow! How how many life altering world rocking experiences are we expecting these students to have yes exactly. in, in such I would say to students you know when when they would fail a class or do poorly one semester or you know if, if a student had to take leave of absence or even mm-hmm. if they got suspended academically I would say to them listen this does not define you this four years is a drop in the ocean of your life this is not your entire life this is four years. And in that incredibly short amount of time, we as institutions of higher education, we expect our students to do a lot. Mm. (laughs) And I think it's unfair of us to expect so much, not always say those expectations out loud and not account for the fact that I mean, I could I could go on and talk about, you know, our, our students of color oh. and how uncomfortable they feel doing mm-hmm. study abroad because, mm-hmm. okay, so I'm already navigating this predominantly white institution if I'm at a place like SNU, let's say, mm-hmm. and now you want me to, to go to France where <laughs> I, I don't, like, I, I already barely speak the language of our, of our campus. Right. You want me right. to go somewhere else now? You know, you want me to go parlez-vous and I'm not ready for this, right? It is the, the expectations of how much we want our college students to pack into four years is, is too much, I think is too much for any of them, but for our first-gen students especially who are already navigating this incredibly, again, life-changing experience where they're learning a whole new language, they're, they're starting an entirely new identity, they're navigating multiple worlds, and then we're saying, okay, and on top of this, you need to do an unpaid internship, and on top of this, you need to get involved on campus, and on top of this, you should probably study abroad, and on top yeah. of this, you should probably have two minors. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> can, it's, it's only four years. Like, <laughs> can, can we maybe simmer down? It is an important four years, but it is not the end-all be-all. Mm. And what we should be doing is concentrating on making them excited about being lifelong learners. Right. So that then when they are ready and yep. then when they are equipped, they can continue to have experiences after they've left us. Yes, yes. No, I, you, you're literally, I've got people tweeting. I've got PJ Baggio saying aspiration capital. I love that perspective, finding this framework for our students and their imposter syndrome, very relevant. So you're, you're hitting on it and we're getting some. Oh, uh, I wish I was on Twitter. I'm not a Twitter person. Well, you know, (laughs) Twitter is a cesspool. Don't, don't bother. Like let, let me be. I've heard so many things. I just can't get into it. I got too much. It just, it's too much, but, um, but I can tell you everything that's happening on Paw Patrol this season. So <laughs> there's that. I love Paw Patrol. As long as he's not what is he's please tell me your kids over like not doing Caillou. That was really Oh no, he never did. Oh he thank never God. did. That's literally yeah. one you just like shield them from. No. He um, does a lot of PBS kids now. So Molly okay. Denali, 
dinosaur train things. Yeah, like I'm I'm not expecting anything less from you to, to be able to make good decisions. <laughs> um, we are coming up at the top of the hour. Um, yeah. I am uh, going to just uh, start to uh, by previewing what our next few weeks are going to look like here on Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. And then I am going to ask uh, uh, Lynn Zlatkowski, Dr. Zlatkowski, to, to give us some information on how people can find her on the interwebs, whether it be uh, LinkedIn or whatever. Um, and so uh, next week, our focus of the show is going to be uh, and Lynn may want to come back for this one. It's roommate conflicts um, and what we're doing in residence life oh, right now goodness. in the age of COVID. <laughs> um, great story this week from uh, from uh, the USA Today on um, conflicts uh, arising from uh, roommates who are vaccinated versus unvaccinated um, and makes me think about all the good old days when really all we had to worry about is, is your roommate a Red Sox fan or a Yankee fan? And is, are you going to be able to get along? So this is a, a whole other thing that residence life professionals are going to be dealing with. And I think it's going to be a, an interesting conversation. Um, the following week, we are going to be talking about the red zone, which is the first basically uh a week, months of school, basically from the move in uh, to the uh, heading home for the Thanksgiving break. Uh, what is the red zone? What that means? That is actually the uh, period of time where students are most at risk of sexual assault on a college campus. And um, it's an important conversation to have. And it's why we need to be uh, kind of studying what institutions are doing well, uh, what we can be doing to do more preventative work there, um, and uh, what we're doing to kind of change our campus culture around sexual assault. And then uh, the following week, we're going to talk about engagement and what does engagement look like in the COVID uh, in COVID campus life. Um, it'll be an interesting conversation in that uh, I'm hoping to have some folks on who are trying to move um, into more face-to-face -face engagement uh, where the last last year and a half has been really uh, all about uh, trying to do things by Zoom and what we're continuing to do by Zoom and what we're trying to do in person and what that looks like. Um, and so those are the next three weeks coming up. Uh, we are always here on Wednesdays at noontime here at Office Hours with Dr. DeVoe. And so I want to thank our audience. I want to thank those who stuck through the show. Uh, we had a nice group today, uh, several folks uh, streaming online, which is awesome. Uh, we do have a Substack. Um, I have my information up here in the um, in the fortune cookie. If you subscribe to my Substack, uh, you will receive uh, the recap of the show every Monday, um, and then also my uh, my reflections on uh, the show and some other news uh, every Thursday. So. Uh, become a Substack uh, a Substack uh, uh, subscriber, um, and you get a little more of me uh, in your mailbox every week. So, Lynn, thank you so much for being here. This was such a pleasure. I always I miss our times where we could just talk. I <laughs> I, I know this is wonderful. This was wonderful. Um, I really enjoyed it. And uh, so, tell people how they can find you. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I have such a unique name, uh, thanks to being a Zlatkowski, that it's very easy to find me on the interwebs. It's very easy to find me on LinkedIn. Uh, so, you know, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, uh, it's just Lynn Zlatkowski, uh, Z-L-O-T-K-O-W-S-K-I. Please feel free to reach out if you ever want to chat a little bit about first-gen students and some low-cost ways that we uh, on college campuses can, can do a better job supporting them, because that's, that's what I'm all about. Well, you're the best and I appreciate you and I appreciate your being here. And now that you've made it into, uh, this wonderful platform called fireside, I hope you come back, uh, either totally. as a guest or just hang out in the audience and 
jump up on stage and give us your two cents on a, on whatever topic we are talking about. Oh God, about you know day. I will. I know. That's why, <laughs> that's why I'm excited. So, so thank you all for being here. Have a wonderful day and uh, have the best day ever. Have a good one. Bye everybody. Thanks.